0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more. Hello, this is a podcast treat from the Conversations Archives. We'll be back on air and in your weekday feed next week. But now, it's my conversation from 2022 with Deborah Francis-White. Deborah's better known to her legion of fans as The Guilty Feminist, That's the title of the hugely successful comedy podcast she's been hosting for nine years. Deborah's based in London, but when we had this conversation, she was in Australia touring the Guilty Feminist live show. And at the same time, she revisited some of her old stomping grounds. Because despite the accent, Deborah actually grew up in Queensland, a beloved daughter who always knew she was adopted but first began looking for her biologicals, as she calls them, around 10 years ago. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Deborah. Hello. How do you feel about being back in Queensland? Do you kind of get the cold sweats or is it is it somewhere of happy memories?
0: No, I love coming home and I feel, I, I know I don't sound very Australian. I used to joke that I read a lot of Enid Blyton as a child and I picked <laughs> up the accent from the books and there's something in that. Uh, But also I went to London as, you know, very, very early as a grown-up, went to university over there and have always lived over there. And I am very empathetic with accents. So if I talk to a friend in L.A. on the phone, my husband will go, you sound like a valley girl. Like it just, like, (laughs) you're not even there. You know, I, I pick up accents super quickly. And so I have to explain to people that, you know, when I come back, I still call Australia home. In, in many ways, and in many ways, of course, London is my home. I have dual citizenship, and I think that's something of the nature of being an adopted child as well. Right from the beginning, you have two passports in a way because you know that you're from here, but you're also from there, but you don't really know where there is. And so you're, I think, comfortable with that duality, comfortable with being from everywhere and nowhere at the same time.
1: Where did you live in Queensland as a kid?
0: Born in Brisbane, and then when I was four we went to the Gold Coast because my dad got a transfer and I was always more comfortable in Brisbane like we would come back to Brisbane to go to the theatre or you know, go shopping and do those things and I loved it I loved the busyness and Brisbane was the biggest city I'd ever been in So this was the glamorous big smoke for me
1: <laughs> so I was, it's all relative
0: yeah but it's you know what Brisbane's a pretty cool city you know it's Brisbane people are often down on themselves. It's a bit like, oh, it's only Brisbane. And I think it's a very cool city. I mean, increasingly so. It's got so much to offer. And when I come back to Australia, I'm always just astonished by how you can get incredible food everywhere. Like I did the Melbourne Comedy Festival Roadshow a few years, and that means they just send you to all these random Victorian towns, some of which you've never heard of, that are called things like Chuka. And some that, you know, are famous gold mining towns, gold rush towns like Ballarat. And in every, not even in every town, on the road stops between those towns where there's absolutely nothing. You go into this little ticket sort of cafe with, you know, the piano player stops playing when you walk in because <laughs> you're not from around these parts. And you can get the most gourmet sandwich on Turkish bread. That is not true in the U.K., you, you stop somewhere like that and you're going to get a sandwich that's been sitting in the window for three days. <laughs> I'm
1: not sure that's been my experience of every road stop in rural Australia, but I'm happy for you, Deborah. Maybe I... I'm just going to the wrong. Maybe I'm not in the Victorian um, <sighs> on the Victorian line. Maybe my standards are lower because I've been in the UK for so long. <laughs> could be But it. I genuinely do feel
0: <laughs> the food in Australia is extraordinary, like many things in Australia.
1: You were uh, the middle child growing up uh, in your family. Were you a classic middle child? How did you relate to authority in the the adults around you?
0: Uh, I think I am a classic middle child in as much as I was a placator and I still have a need to people please, which I'm working on. And I feel like you can get a bit lost as a middle child, but that can be a blessing because you can just be off reading and daydreaming and creating your own worlds and you don't have to forge the same pioneering battles that the eldest has too that my sister says oh I had to you know convince you know our parents that it was okay to do this and this and this and then those doors were just open for you I don't really remember it like that but I think you only in life remember the doors that are closed to you you don't remember the ones that are open that just looks like a corridor (laughs) doesn't look like a series of open doors um but also you're not the baby and I think middle children can be quite flexible
1: were you a performer as a kid
0: oh yeah 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 Uh, I've always been a performer and uh, my sister, though four years older than me, would say, you go and ask that lady the time, you're the outgoing one. And I've I've thought since, because my sister was quite shy, that it is possible because she was four years older and much cleverer than I was being four years older. That it's possible she manipulated in me into having an outgoing personality, so she didn't have to do the work. <laughs> that is the kind of thing my sister would do. Like, come on, you're the outgoing one. You go. You know you, you want go, to. Yeah, you do that. Yeah, you go up there and say that or do that or appear on stage. But I think it was much more deeply ingrained in me than that. I was from a very young age a performer. I remember my nursery school or like kindy very very first end of year performance. And it was like a circus theme and I was a horse and we all had to come out like dressed in these little, I think we we're like in little white skivvies and leggings and we had a black velvet reins with little and bells, I remember that, and there were girls behind us dancing like they were the riders and we were prancing around. <laughs> and I remember very clearly, this is such a strong memory for me, I remember all the other horses dancing away and I remember the audience clapping and cheering and laughing and I remember thinking well, the audience are not done with this dance and they're not done with me. Like, they, they clearly wanted more, Sarah. And that was... You've been trying to meet that need ever since. Yeah, so I danced on and they clapped more and I danced on and they laughed more. So I danced on and the teacher had to come and lead me away. And that story was legendary in my house because nobody else would have done that, you know. And, and I just felt more comfortable on stage than off from a very early age.
1: I can't imagine as a young girl you imagine that one day you'd be hosting a comedy podcast on feminism on stage. What did it look like back then when you were a little kid? What did you think you might be doing? I think as a child,
0: actually, I thought I was going to be an author, like a, uh, a novelist. But as I got older, I remember being on the debating team in year 11 and at my school sporting was everything. You know, are you going to win a sporting trophy and I couldn't run fast or catch anything. I was always the last in races. I was terrible at netball, like just so shocking. Like It's hard to be bad at netball. Oh, I'm listen. I'm a champion <laughs> at being terrible at netball. Don't don't worry. If you if you need tips on how to be bad at netball, <laughs> here you come to me. But but I could just discovered, I could debate. And I was always third speaker. And so I didn't have I mean, I worked on the argument with the team, but the way it was done at my school anyway, or the way it was done then, the third speaker didn't have anything planned. Like you had a short summation, I guess, and then you had to do all the rebuttal. So I would sit there as the opposition were talking, writing streams of rebuttal consciousness on palm cards, and I could just write jokes as I went. And it was just something about the state that my brain was in. And so then I would stand up and do a kind of, roast-like takedown of what they'd said. And students started to come and watch this and they never wanted to watch the debates, but because it was funny and it was optional to come, it started to fill up and and we started to get, like, full houses and I started to become really well-known for these funny debates and that was my way of sporting prowess. I couldn't manipulate balls or javelins, but I could manipulate words.
1: That and dancing horses, your two strong points. So having gorged yourself as a child on Enid Blight and you took yourself off to London as a young woman, how did the image you had in your head of London compare with what you found once you arrived?
0: It was absolutely the same. It was like reading about Narnia or Hogwarts and discovering that was real. I cannot tell you how much it lived up to expectations. <laughs> I remember flying in, and it was so verdant. It was like an emerald. I was like, oh, because it rained so much, it was so green, and I, I was crying because I, I, I had, I could read when I was four because my mother would read to me every day after lunch, and I just started to follow the words. And again, I'm very bad at numbers. I was, I was just absolutely. I still, numbers still mystify me, but words. I just always loved words and so because I could read on my own before I went to school and all the books were set in London. Now that's not the case now for children. Children have books you know about people like them and about you know where they live and you can find books about all sorts of different children but in those days or certainly all the books we had seemed to be set in London or set in England. So for me that was the land of literature and I remember just weeping as I was landing and the woman next to me on the plane said, are you coming home? And I said, yeah, I think I am. And then my, I moved in with some, you know, girls, I didn't even know them really, but friends of friends in Gloucester Avenue in South Kensington in a bed sit. There were three of us in one room. We shared a bathroom with everyone on our floor. One of us slept on a mattress on the floor and I could, I've never been happier. Just, it was... (laughs) It was twinkly lights and it was. I flew in with a terrible sunburn because my friends had taken me out in, you know, the 40-degree heat in Sydney the night before. And I landed in the middle of winter and it was like Narnia. It was wonderful.
1: (laughs) Explain to me, Deborah, why it was early on in your years in London that you were looking for a gay man to marry. Oh. (laughs) Well, in those days, Sarah, gay men could not
0: marry each other. They have since selfishly campaigned. (laughs) to be able to have full human rights. But in those days, Antipodean young Antipodean women who wanted to stay longer in the UK would often marry a man for either £2,000 or to, I discovered what they wanted more than anything was a wedding so that their mothers would see that they were married and they could convince everyone that they were straight and then they said, oh, we'll just appear at a few family events and then I'll say we've had a row and then I'll say you're busy and you're working and then two years later I'll say we've split up. And I remember one man in particular saying, so I thought, I thought for your wedding gown we could have a sweetheart <laughs> neckline. I was like, darling, she knows you're gay. You are not fooling
1: Anybody. How did you find potential uh, marriage material? Were, you, were there people you knew, or, or was no. there like an underground network of, uh, of of gays for hire?
0: I was schooled by a young woman from New Zealand who'd done the same thing. Antipodean women would take each other aside and say, "This is what you need to do." And she told me what you did was you put an ad in the Gay Times, and because it was all yeah you know, before the internet. The internet in those days was just basically pornography and some directions to a shop. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't the, the flourishing hub that occupies our every waking minute now. Uh, it wasn't a great place for connecting. So you would put an, an advertisement in a magazine, and I think it said, husband sought for mutual benefit or something like that. And, you know, I mean, thank God we're not doing that now. Thank God that, you know, most gay men, at least in that... Pocket of the world, feel comfortable to tell their friends We're and family their own sweetheart necklines. Yeah, and tell their friends and family who they really are and live an authentic life. But uh, in those days, uh, that's that's what went on. And I, you know, when that feeling is, you just you're, th- you're thinking this doesn't feel right and this feels scary and this feels like I'm going down a path I can't come back from. And in the meantime, I was dating a young man I'd met at improv class. Because I'd been really involved in theatre sports in Brisbane, and uh, I got involved in theatre sports in London, and met a young man at improv class, and told him we had started, we'd been on a few dates, we'd been together for you know some weeks, and I said, "Look, I'm going to marry." In fact, at that point, it was a bisexual man, and he didn't want anything. He just said, "I just think people should be allowed to live where they want to live," and I said, "I'm going to marry this handsome bisexual man, but don't worry, and he, <laughs> it's nothing to worry about. Don't alarm you. So it doesn't sound very unalarming And I said, "Explained," and he went, "No, no, no. I want to marry you." And I said, no, 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 it's going to ruin everything because we're seeing each other and we're falling in love. And he said, I don't want to take you to the airport and I don't want anyone else to marry you, so I'm going to do it. And we and uh, Rita, I married him and
1: we are still married. This is the Hollywood film I cannot believe I have not seen. It well, it's Green like, Card.
0: Right. It's basically you have seen it. It's Andy McDowell <laughs> and Gerard Depardieu uh, in Green Card. And, uh, yeah. But we, unlike Andy McDowell and Gerard Depardieu in Green Card, we were already seeing each other. We were already, already having, a, having a romance. It's just
1: we hustled the wedding part. You ended up studying literature at Oxford University. How did you fit into that world, Deborah? <sighs> I mean, honestly,
0: I blagged it. I just <laughs> rocked up and pretended I fit in. I remember feeling very out of my element, like all of these young. Because I was a bit older by that point, and all of these young—I wasn't much older than them. But you know, when you're meeting people who were last year in school uniform, and you've already lived a life, and you know, married a strange man, and put it an out in the gay times, <laughs> and you know, I'd lived in various countries. That had, I'd had would had a number of gap years doing slightly precarious things getting over random borders and nannying in various countries and you know I'd done I'd lived a bit of a life and uh there were people who honestly had been in school uniform the year before who'd say so I am going to direct Tosca at the Oxford Playhouse and I'd think how do you have the confidence but they'd been to very posh schools and I couldn't understand where they got this cast iron entitlement from. And then I remember having a tutorial in this beautiful old tower in our college, and it was up. We used to call it the phallic tower because you'd sort of have to climb this spiral staircase to get to the top. And there was a very awkward, very British man that would found it very awkward talking to women who would look at his shoes the whole time. And uh, they would quiz; he would quiz you on your essay. But you'd written an essay, then you, he would play devil's advocate and quiz you. And pick fights with you, basically. And he pushed me on something and I said some, this and that. And he said, now that is a very good point. He said, why did you not make that point in your essay? That is an excellent argument. And I said, well, none of the critics had said it. So I wasn't sure it was right. And he looked at me aghast and he said, you are an Oxford scholar. Your opinion is as important as any opinion in the world. Your opinion is as valid as anyone. That is what an Oxford scholar is. And I went down the tower and went, that's why they're so confident. They've been told that since they were eight. And I realised that the reason the people in the House of Commons are as they are, not naming any names, Boris Johnson, is when you spend three years abusing the furniture in Oxford, climbing in and out the windows when you've had too much to drink, dancing on the tables... The House of Commons does not frighten you. It looks like your junior common room. It looks like the place where you had a party and someone, you, you know, climbed out, up out the window on a sheet or something. It's, it's not scary anymore. And that whole system is designed to make some people feel small and
1: to make some buildings feel small for some people. So it demythologized all of that that mm-hmm. kind of power for you. So there's not an um, alternate reality where you're Doctor Francis White, wolf scholar or or something like that. Were you happy to escape from that kind of world? Do you know
0: I loved I love being at Oxford. It was such a privilege and I, I... You know, there was a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong, and it was very stimulating. And I did loads of plays, and you know, I was very extracurricular. I d- I shouldn't. I should have worked a lot harder than I did, but I did work hard. I just worked hard at all the extracurricular stuff: putting on plays, imp- improv shows, writing plays. I won a playwriting competition, and that play got put on. You know, I d- I was doing, doing, doing all the time. I was in lots of societies. But I remember in my third year I had to do a dissertation on Oscar Wilde and I remember sitting in this archaic, beautiful library in the Radcliffe Camera, you know, where literally John Donne has sat, where it, so many famous people have sat, so many prime ministers have sat there, so many famous authors have sat there. And I was reading about Oscar Wilde and Oscar Wilde in this particular year was had two plays on in the West End and was doing a lecture tour of the United States of America and I thought, oh, my God. I don't want to sit here reading about you. I want to be you. I couldn't wait to get out of this library. I wanted to have two plays in the West End and be on a lecture tour of America. (laughs) And, uh, you know, now I have a play going on next year in uh, in the UK. I can't really say where yet because it's not been announced. And I have a movie in pre-production, you virtually are a lecture Wild. tour. Yeah, I'm on a lecture <laughs> tour now. That's what The Guilty Feminist <laughs> is. It's, you know, it's a stand-up comedy tour, but of course his lecture tour was like that. It's, you know, something between a stand-up show and a TED Talk show. And, you know, that's, that's what I'm doing. So I, I mean, and there are some people that desperately want to read and analyse what other people have done, and, and we need those people. And if you are one of those people, please keep doing it, because it's important. But I just, every time I was reading about, you know, I did a dissertation on Hitchcock in the film theory section of my degree and I just was like, I want to make a movie. I am sick of reading
1: about men doing stuff. When can I do it? (laughs) So you you were already involved in improv and, and connecting in that world of comedy. What did you love about improv? What was it that worked for you? Improv is everything I can do. It's the basis
0: of everything I can do. I was in a very patriarchal religion, And I was not allowed to do certain things. That's why I went to university a bit later. And without going into that, uh, I had a book called Keith Johnston's Impro, written by a man who was at the Royal Court in the 1960s and taught at RADA around that same time. And if you ever get a chance to read that book, there's a chapter called Notes on Myself, and it was about how he was very locked And he was teaching children and he suddenly realised the way to open up children and that he himself had had very bad teachers that had made him criticise himself and second-guess himself and censor himself. And uh, that's how... And he started to develop these improv techniques to work with actors. And that book was an escape hatch in my mind at a time when I was not allowed to have independent thought. A turn of phrase in the religion I was in was independent thinking. And that was a bad thing. And I used to improvise these little stories and poems in my mind, the way I'd learnt to in the book. And I used to sort of just escape and, oh God, I wasn't meant to do this, but go out. And I found Brisbane Theatre Sports. And they used to come and do workshops where I lived. And then I got involved in the community and would do shows and be participating in shows in various ways. Um And that lit a fire in me. It was an electric fire. So when I left... Uh, that religion and I was living in London, the first thing I did was go to improv. And improv is the opposite of a high-control group or a cult-like religion. It's all about trust yourself, be in the moment, listen to your partner, look into their eyes, be here and be connected. It's the opposite of a cult. And so I, to cure myself, because I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how traumatised I was and I didn't know that I needed therapy... And I wouldn't have known where to get that. But I understood that improv was the answer to the, the locked performer inside me, the locked creator, the locked storyteller. And I found a woman called Patty Stiles, who is Canadian and was then living in London and has since uh, moved to Melbourne. And I identified in her the cure. I, d- I wouldn't have been able to articulate it at that time. But I, I, she did a masterclass. And I got on the tube with her afterwards and said, would you teach me what you know? How many hours a week could you teach me for? What would I need to pay you? Who would I, Who else would need... How many other people would I need to get to do this? What would we need? She said, well, you'd need four people. I'll teach as many hours a week as you can. you can go for it. And that became my... I was nannying, so when the kids were at school, I'd do it. In the evenings, I'd do it. And I just did it put myself through like this intensive with Patty Stiles who just opened me up and taught me how to say yes and, but not just like a lot of people in joke you know, let's go to Disneyland, yes and let's go to ride, yes and let's see Mickey Mouse. And they're not really listening to each other. They're just listing things to do at Disneyland. They're not really connected. But how to really be in a space and trust yourself and trust your partner and trust yourself and trust your partner. And I remember... She said, well, I've got to get off the tube here. Where are you going to? And I said, oh, I parked my car back at the workshop. I just got on the tube to follow you. She did not think that was strange. She thought that was a yes and she was like, sure, that's what I would do if I also saw something I wanted and wanted to be in that space with that person. And that's why Patty Styles is probably the greatest teacher of Keith Johnston's techniques in the world, including Keith Johnston. Uh, She's an extraordinary person.
1: So it's much, much bigger and much deeper than wanting to make people laugh.
0: I went and did an ayahuasca ceremony. Am I allowed to talk about this on the ABC?
1: (laughs) Please, I'm surprised that this is the response, but yes.
0: Ayahuasca is a psychedelic and it's a Peruvian tea made out of two plants. uh, And it is to be respected and it in my opinion, only to be done with the permission and supervision of a Peruvian or indigenous shaman. I I do increasingly understand that the leadership of the world should be in the hands of indigenous people who have a connection to their history and to the land. And in Australia, in South America, in North America, and, you know, around the world. And, I mean, I haven't really talked about this publicly before, but I had in my mind, because you can self-direct when you take ayahuasca, I had in my mind that I was like a broken vase. And... Um, have you ever seen Kintsugi, the Japanese art form where if a vase is broken, they pour gold into the cracks to fix it and then they say the vase is now more beautiful because it was broken because now it's got these gold patterns in it. And I imagined myself as that vase and I said to Mother Ayahuasca, um, who was the sort of, you know, you kind of hand yourself over to Mother Earth. And I said to her, could you... Uh, fill the cracks with gold, and make me whole. And she took me all through that time and she showed me not the trauma, but the things I had done in order to survive and thrive. She showed me my community, the improv community in Brisbane and the book. And then she showed these things to me and she said, "You've left, you've asked me to fix the cracks with gold, but you've left me nothing to do. As the cracks were forming, you poured gold in straight away. Your vase is whole. And I pulled back and I saw that she was right. And often I think we don't realise how much we do at the time that we are being traumatised to heal ourselves as we go.
1: on air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski.
0: You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au/conversations.
1: Deborah, when I was growing up in Queensland in the 1980s and 90s, feminism was not celebrated and embraced the way it is now. Were there women around you that you looked up to as feminists? Were you conscious of that back then? I mean, I think
0: because my mother always worked and she learnt to be a painter in, in my childhood and then became a successful working artist... And we were always at art exhibitions and she would win prizes. She would always sell everything she painted. And she kept the household going. And, you know, it it felt to me like I never imagined ever. And I look back on this and think, why not? I never imagined getting married and having children ever. Not once. I always imagined going to university. I always imagined having a big career. I never, as a small child, ever imagined getting married and having children. So I think a lot of the women in my life... My mother and teachers and people like that, the, the authors I read, were my
1: feminist icons. It's just I wouldn't have described them that way. The Guilty Feminist begins with you and, and your guest saying, I'm a feminist, but... What's so powerful, so alive about that admission? Oh, gosh. Well, the first time I
0: made it, I'll be honest, I thought, oh, God, I'm going to get kicked out of the feminist club here. So I'm first and foremost a comedian and... I remember my friend Bridget Christie saying to me, you'll never find your real audience until you say the thing you're scared to say. And I was like, well, that's right for you, Bridget. You're very <laughs> strident, sure of what you think and what you think is very noble. And I felt like my, you know, I desperately wanted to be part of this resurgence of feminism because I'd left a patriarchal religion and then found that it wasn't a very feminist era. You know, I went to university in 97 and it was all girl power and Ladet culture. And I remember trying to talk about feminism at Oxford and people saying, well, you've got equality now wasn't a feminist time at all. So by the time 2012 came around, you know, it started to change. You know, there were all sorts of responses in all sorts of different ways at that time, forming a kaleidoscope of a new feminist world. And I desperately wanted to be part of it, but I wasn't sure I was good enough. And I was thinking, well, I'm a feminist, but... Um, you know, and this is one of the first things I confessed. One time I went on a Women's Rights March popped into a department store to use the loo, got distracted trying out face cream. When I came out, the march was gone. And I remember thinking, well, other feminists might just go, well, you're not very good to them. But, of course, they just roared with laughter and and so many women were just like, oh, my God, thank God you've admitted that. Like, I also have left a march at half time and just gone for a quick drink in the pub and never come back because it's hard, you know, it's a long way to walk. You get a bit claustrophobic. It can feel a bit, you know, too many people. And, you know, you went, you were counted, you did what you could... Next time you go a bit further. By the 3rd March you get to the end. Or you don't, <laughs> you know. But, but the point is we all do things where our actions and our values don't meet. And the ability to confess those things and say we don't have to be perfect to be a force for meaningful change was a relief.
1: What other things have you heard or what are some of the favourite things you've heard women say after that but?
0: ha <laughs> Um... Well, Grace Petrie, who's on tour with me, who's a brilliant, brilliant folk protest singer, one of my favourites of hers was, I'm a feminist, but the other day I said to my cat, I feed you, you've got to let me hold you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're just sort of, you know, silly fun stuff, you know. Um, Sarah Pasco said, I'm a feminist, but I would sell the Spice Girls to Boko Haram to get on Strictly Come Dancing, <laughs> which is our Dancing with the Stars um you know stuff like that it's just you know some of it's like fantasy stuff and some of it's you know like that is obviously an enormous hyperbole written as a joke but you know some of it's well you know i i mean one of the ones that i always remember was one of mine which was um i'm a feminist but one time i was boarding a light aircraft from cape cod to boston and the pilot asked me my weight in front of everyone so he could determine how much fuel to put in the plane so we could safely make the crossing. And I panicked and lied by 20 pounds, oh endangering my life, that of the other passengers, and a border collie that was along for the ride. <laughs> and I remember halfway across the water, it started to get a bit shaky, like those little planes do. And I said to my best gay friend, David, I was like, David, David. He made the journey all the time. I was like, David, I've lied about my weight. He said, oh, don't worry, darling, they add £10 on for women and gay men. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, I survived. But I'm like, they can see what I look like. What am I lying for? Like, what's, what is that? Um, but and then why do I care? And what does it matter? And oh my God, it's, we're so obsessed with our bodies. But in that moment, that's what I did. And it's, it's very human. You know, our urges and our... The thing is, I think it is quite feminist because I think the next, almost the next stage for feminism and why Fleabag was so successful, actually. Is flea bag is about the frightened, hungry, libidinous, just dishonourable at times human inside every woman, and there is an imposition of gender. You know, like projected upon us, there are implications to gender, and you've got two choices: you can live up to those, or you can fight them, and both of those are exhausting. Being the woman you're meant to be that the patriarchy wants you to be or society wants you to be or feminism wants you to be is exhausting. And going, I'm not going to do those things. I'm not going to be that woman that you think I should be who has it all and does it all and has to do all the emotional labour at home and also has a big career. I'm not going to do that. I don't have to dress like you want me to. That's also exhausting. There's no no other things. There's no other options but those ones. Um, And so... I think maybe the next stage for feminism and all sorts of identity politics is saying, look, you know, under this, I'm a human being and human beings get scared and human beings get hungry and human beings are greedy and human beings are ignoble and human beings uh, uh, have desire. And first and foremost, that's who I am.
1: Right from, from the start, of the podcast, you recorded it in front of a live audience. What's that live element bring to the
0: podcast? It's everything. It's everything. I think it's because the listeners at home don't just hear me and another comedian, maybe an activist or a writer, saying these things and feeling these things, feeling the injustice of the world, doing comedy, takedowns of the establishment or, you know, getting quite cross and, you know, all crying together as we sometimes do. They hear an audience, they hear an army, they hear hundreds of women in the audience and people of minority genders and cisgendered men. They hear all sorts of people in the audience feeling the fury, laughing at the same things, gasping at the same things, asking questions, contributing. You know, I do a lot of crowd work with the audience where I go in and, and I don't talk to people who don't want to be talked to, you know, they, they put their hand up and say something or whatever. But they hear that they have an, an army and that empowers them. I'll never forget, about a year into doing the show, maybe even only nine months, actually, um, a woman came up to me after the show and said, I just want you to know um, that uh, she had gone on a date and one of the worst things that can happen to a woman happened to her. And she said, and I never would have reported it if it wasn't for this podcast, and she said, he's in jail now and he's... He's not able to hurt women. I mean, for the moment. And I said, Well, you might have reported anyway. She said, I 100% tell you I would not have. She said, I would have thought it's my fault. And I, I would have thought if I'd gone to the authorities, they would have said, Well, why would you? She said it was a, a, a dating app. Why would you go and meet a man that you just met on the internet? Why would you offer to drive him home? It's my fault. She said, I thought it was just my fault. And she said, and I listened to the episode about anger four times. And she heard the audience responding, you know, and she said, I listened to the episode about apologising four times. And I felt, no, I have an army. And I thought, even though they're going to say, well, you can't prove it and it's your fault, it doesn't matter. I have to stand up for my army and I have my army with me. And she said, I never would have had the courage. And that to me, I was like, okay, I I need to not stop doing this show. Because the thing that women say to me most often is either because of the show, I said no, or because of the show, I said yes. They say, because I listened, I I thought, yeah, why am I not? I'm letting all these men in my life who just think they're entitled to go off and do their PhD. And I just keep thinking, well, am I good enough to be Dr. Somebody? And I listen, I think, hold on a minute. When I hear these, I think, yeah, you should go and do that. And I hear these women clapping and cheering and laughing. I think, yeah, 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 I'm part of that. Suddenly it emboldens women to go, yes, I am good enough, or no, that's a boundary, I will not accept that.
1: When did your parents tell you you were adopted? I always knew.
0: They just always used the word, I guess, until I understood. It was never a surprise.
1: And so was it something you thought about much growing up?
0: Uh, A little bit occasionally, you know, at different ages, but my parents were very good about that. They would say, your birth mother must have loved you so much to give you away because she wouldn't have wanted to. Um, you were so beautiful. So she must have loved you so much she gave you to a family that could look after you because she couldn't look after you. So I always felt loved by everyone. So I didn't have hang-ups about it.
1: So what prompted you to, to want to find out more?
0: I think I just got to a certain age where there were certain pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that is the self that need to be filled in and I just got to a point where I was like I need to fill this in Mm -hmm. and as one gets older one thinks well you know at any point someone can pass away and then you may never find that piece of the puzzle things like that are scary to do but I've never I've never filled in a piece of my own jigsaw puzzle and regretted it even if and I knew that I wouldn't even if it was a rejection I wouldn't like I, because I'd know what that piece looked like then and I'd be looking at it and facing it. What happened
1: the first time you rang the adoption service to try to get some information about your birth mother? Uh, she said, it's reciprocal rights.
0: So if we tell you her name and then she calls, we'll have to give her your name. And I was at this point, this was years before I was ready to do anything and I just thought I should have her name. And I said, okay, don't tell me then, don't tell me. Because I don't, I'm not ready for that. I wasn't ready for anyone to come and just knock on my door. And she said, well, I can tell you a first name because that information is not identifying. And I was like, well, that would be nice to know, okay. So she said, I'm going to have to put you on hold. So it was a a Queensland Adoption Service, so she was like, this is how I remember it, I'll have to put you on hold because that information is in a more secret file. (laughs) And then I thought, oh, this is exciting enough. The then off she came off she went, came back, and she said, I'm so sorry, I can't tell you. You're an exception to the rule. I can tell most people, but not you. And I said, Why? And she said, because your birth mother's first name is so unusual as to be identifying. And I was like, Oh my God, my birth mother is Jermaine Greer. <laughs> I was like, she's obviously famous. And I lived with that for some years. It was kind of a joke. It kind of wasn't. I mean, now I'm quite, at the time, I thought, oh, my God, she's a feminist icon. But, but now, now I'm quite pleased it's not Jermaine because she has missed the turn-off in so many significant and extraordinary ways that it would be awkward. Because we have very different ideas of what feminism is now. Um, but at the time, I was like, oh, my God. Uh, but then years later, because they'll tell you if she tries to get in touch. They, I thought, she, if she's not tried at this point, she's not going to try. So I asked for the name. And she said that her first names were Devon Eulalia and that she was from Brisbane. So I was like, okay, so now I know those things. And I thought, right, if there's anything there, it'll be there. So I put that name in and there was nothing there. And I thought, well, a woman that age isn't going to suddenly build an enormous online profile, so I'll probably never find out anything more. Um, And then... Some years later, I used to Google it once a year. And some years later, after a conversation with a friend that was relevant, I was had a, had a late night, had a couple of drinks, and I was like, I'll oh, just check, I'll just check. There's never anything there, it'll just take a minute. And suddenly I could see that Ancestry.com had had uploaded the electoral records. So I could see where she was living, I could see that she was in Brisbane, which we'd been told she was from interstate, so there was no chance of us bumping into her socially. That was just a comforting lie from the government that they used to tell, that kind of thing they used to do all the time. And I could see exactly where she was from. And so I thought now pretty much anyone with that surname is going to be related to me in Brisbane. First person that came up was a guy called Clint on Facebook, looked like a surfer dude. And he was wearing a T-shirt that said... It ain't going to suck itself. Oh and I thought, God. well, this is why you don't look. Other people are so keen for you to look. They're like, you should look. I'm curious. I can't believe you haven't looked. I'd be so curious. And I was like, oh, my God. This is, this is how it's going to be. And, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I kept looking. And I just, you know, was finding people. I was like, oh, my God, are these the people I'm related to? And I, I was panicked and didn't know what to do. And then I found a picture of a woman from 1914 with my surname, and her eyebrows were exactly the shape of my eyebrows my eyebrows are quite distinctive. Most people, are like, most people's eyebrows go straight across or arch over, but mine go up and out. And she had the up and out eyebrows and the high forehead. My forehead is half my face. And she and I both wear the same sweepy side fringe to disguise that fact. Even 1914, <laughs> the, the, the high forehead woman. I'm a woman. feminist,
1: Bart. <laughs> yeah, the
0: high forehead foreheaded woman throughout the ages has understood the value of the sweeping side fringe. So... I thought, right, this part of my face now I know is from this side of the family because you don't know what you're made up of. So I thought I'm only looking for people with the surname of my birth mother and I'm only looking for eyebrows. It's
1: kind of a phrenological study as
0: well as just Kind of, yeah. (laughs) I was literally just looking at at the shape of eyebrows. I wasn't looking for anything else. And I must have looked at, you know, 50 pictures and then suddenly there she was, I was like, Uh, I saw a picture of a woman called Alison, my eyebrows, my high forehead, and I went, that's my cousin. I just knew. And it was like a treasure hunt from there on in, you know, looking at Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, looking for all of these people. It's a treasure hunt. We've got... We've left this online treasure hunt now. I mean, apparently you're not meant to do it that way. You're meant to go through something called jigsaw. I didn't know. (laughs) You were looking for
1: eyebrows. The first person you rang was your birth mother's sister. Mm -hmm. What happened on that phone call? Well... (laughs) Her name is also Deborah,
0: which is a coincidence, because um, my mother dreamt my name. So it's, it's uh, yeah, very, very strange. Um, and I didn't have my birth mother, Devon's number, but I could see Deborah had a business in the same place where I was born and I, I, you know, figured it out. And so I thought, well, I'll call her because also I'll get a read. So I rang her and said... Um, you know, was this, you asked her, is this your name, maiden name? Yes. And did you have a sister? Do you have a sister about 10 years older called Devon? Yes. And um, I said, I don't want to shock you, Deborah, but I think I'm the baby that Devon gave away. And she said, Oh, yeah. What makes you think that? And I said, Because I am. I said, Does Devon ever talk about me? Does Devon ever say, I hope she'll call or I hope she won't? And she said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. Devon never gave away a baby. And I went, oh, my God. I was like, oh, I, th- I thought you knew because you were living in the same house and you would have been 10 or 11, she would have been 20, 21. She said, yeah, she never had a baby. She went to live in a flat for a while. She didn't. She went to live in an unmarried mother's home. And I was like, oh, my God. So did
1: you try to back out in that moment or, or uh, how you just dropped this grenade? <laughs> I just said, oh, I'm so sorry, Deborah. I thought you knew.
0: I said, could you just give me Devon's number in New Zealand and forget I called? And she went, but you have called. I said, yeah, no, I do see that. She said, anyway, she's not in New Zealand. She's visiting our dad here in Brisbane and he's got a heart condition. He's old. You can't call there. And she said, I'll go over there. I'll tell her your story. I'll call you back, tell you what she said. She do you was think very she wasn't skeptical. believing you? Yeah, she said, I'll tell you your story. And uh, I waited by the phone till 5 a.m. The phone rang. and She went, Right. Well, parent, your story does check out. Devon does remember this incident.
1: This incident yeah. of
0: giving birth. Yeah, yeah, right. This incident. It was so funny. I've heard Deborah <laughs> tell the story. She tells it exactly the same way. Uh, she said, uh, Yeah, she's excited. And uh, she's waited for this phone call all her life. Yeah, and that was the beginning, you know, of the
1: conversations. <sighs> The first time your birth mother and you spoke on the phone, what was her voice like? I mean,
0: it's not... It wasn't for me. I mean, it's different for everyone, but it wasn't this... There were moments of great heightened emotion. Like, I remember I was very vulnerable when I was asking Deborah those questions and she didn't know because I thought when she didn't didn't know about it, I was like, oh, this is going to be a no because if she'd wanted people to know, she would have told... Like, her sister didn't know in all these years... So I I was very vulnerable then. And I do remember in in my treasure hunting I was convinced I had a sister in Spain who I had everything in common with, had the same eyebrows, you know, I was convinced. And I said to Deborah, could you just tell me one thing? And I remember there was real, you know, emotion in my voice. I said, could you just tell me do I have a sister called Sarah living in Spain? And she went... Well, no, not that I know of, but I'm learning a lot of things today. (laughs) Um, And then she said, but you do have three sisters, though, and one of them lives in Scotland. So, you know, it was just this, you just never knew what you were going to get. That woman I was convinced was my sister living in Spain. Who had the same eyebrows. That's the random thing. It was just someone, my birth mother vaguely knew, who followed her on Pinterest. So she was nobody in the story. But in my mind, she was highly important to the story. And the reason I called, really, was this sort of thinking, you know. Uh, So it's, it's it's a very strange thing to do when there are moments of deep vulnerability. But that first conversation, it was more like talking to like a teacher f- that you can sort of hardly remember from when you were very small, saying, oh, I always wondered what happened to you and just was very curious about how things had turned out, but it didn't feel like this big emotional connection or anything like that. As it went on, you know, you find those spaces. It's just not, it's not a reunion. You know, it's not, it's not a reunion because you've never known each other. So it's more of an exploration with some deep vulnerability and, but I didn't do it until I was ready to be rejected, that I felt like I could cope with that. I didn't do it until I had enough tent poles in my life that I was going to be okay either way.
1: Did you want to know about your biological dad as well? Um, I have
0: tried to find out about him, but it's a tricky one, that one, because I'm, I remember saying to Devon... I workshopped this question quite carefully. I was like, what can you tell me about my father? Um, and she went, oh, uh, I, don't, I don't think I told him. And I was like, I think he'd remember if you had. <laughs> That's a conversation that would come rushing back to the mind, isn't it? So I've tried to find him, but I have to be very gentle with that because if if he doesn't know, firstly, he may deny it. And secondly, if his family don't, I mean, he doesn't know, his family aren't going to know. and You could go crashing in. Like with your birth mother, you know that she remembers it. So however this goes down, she must have been waiting for this call, even if she's waiting to say no, which fortunately Devon wasn't. And, you know, it's really lovely because I know all my biological family and, you know, I have wonderful siblings that I grew up with, but also one can always have more siblings and nieces and a nephew that I didn't know I had and things like that. So it's been truly wonderful. But on the other side, I just don't know what that reception might be and haven't had any luck finding anybody. But I am doing 23andMe and com. you know, the sort of... Um, genes test because you know I know someone who did that just to sort of just for a laugh going, oh, you know, it says, Oh, I'm 24% Irish, you know, that kind of thing. And they were looking for that kind of heritage and whether or not they had anything in their genes that they maybe wanted to know about health wise. And it it asks you if there's any relatives who've uploaded their genes, would you be open to meeting them? And you can either tick yes or no. And she'd ticked yes for a laugh. And it said she had 25 half-siblings. And it turned out she didn't know that her biological father was a sperm donor, that her parents hadn't uh, been able to have children so that they they got a sperm donor. And her biological father... That was 25 that were in the system, by the way, because he'd been a sperm donor for ages and had loads of his own kids and knocked up a number of women along the way.
1: All this thinking you've done over the last 10 years about family... How do you think about family now? What, what is it to you? And, and who counts as, as your family? I mean, the thing is I grew up knowing that
0: biology isn't family. Like, you know, I didn't know anyone biologically related to me, but I had a very close family growing up and very protective, loving parents. So for me, family's never been about biology And then I found my biological family and felt a real kinship and connection and affection. So I'm very good at creating urban family, creating chosen family. Um, I nannied for kids and I go there every Christmas and those kids are grown up now and I'm as much family to them and they're as much family to me as... As, as anybody, you know. And, and five years ago, a man came on a podcast I was doing and his name was Steve Ali. Steve was short from Stoffer. He was from Syria. He'd just arrived in London. Didn't yet have his papers. And I just felt a real connection to him. Needed someone to mind our cats. He needed somewhere to stay. He came to stay and has never left. And <laughs> he, I don't have children. Um, but he is like a grown-up son to me, you know, and we are so close. And I couldn't love Steve, well, and listen, not to undermine in any way his brilliant parents who raised him, but I couldn't love Steve anymore if he were my biological son. And it's a really unique and special relationship. And sometimes the relationships you have with people who now need for you or who moved in with you when they were in need of a family, sometimes it's a closer relationship because you chose it, it wasn't imposed on anybody. Nobody had to do this. No one's obliged to love anybody, and yet you do, and yet you continue to show up as if your family. Never underestimate that. We, a lot of us saw this in lockdown. If you start treating an elderly lady who lives two doors down like your gran, in a short period of time, she becomes your gran. Because how is she not? If if you're acting as if she is, I think we're very limited by biology. What is biology, really? You know, I am my mother's daughter, absolutely. I'm so like my mum. And, you know, people would always say when I was growing up, oh, you look so much like your dad or you look so much like your mum. Because people would see what they want to see. You know, biology is, you know, is great and there are some great things about it. But there's a lot of great stuff about choosing somebody and then saying,
1: you're mine, I'm yours, feel safe. Deborah, it's been really great to meet you. Thank you for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you. It's been an unqualified delight.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.